Thank you, Jeremy. Good morning, Redeemer Church. It is an incredible privilege to get to bring you God's Word this morning. Um, This morning, I want us to look upon the heart of Christ for those who are hurting, those who experience deep need for Him, for those who are outcast by their sin and shame. I don't even feel like I need to preach a sermon because that video really did it all for me. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and your sense of your need for Jesus is far off. You feel like you've got this. Maybe you're here this morning and your sense for your need for Jesus is all too close. It's all too real. And you're all too acquainted with that sense of need. Before we get any further, though, I want you to hear this. If you are in Christ, nothing separates you from God's love for you. Nothing. The self-righteous person, the self-reliant person, the person who feels like they have it all together, and the deeply ashamed person, the weary person, the hurting person, All have incredibly deep need for Christ's love. Christ is our comforter, our hope, our joy, our purpose, our meaning. I want us to see Christ together this morning. So to those of you who are weary and heavy laden, to those of you who are in the throes of age-old sin patterns, to those who feel like a failure, in all the things God has entrusted you with. To those who are self-reliant, self-assured, or self-righteous. To those of you who feel like you've been too distant from God for too long. To the children we have here with us this morning, the few that we have, who have been dealing with a hard year of schooling, who struggle to obey your parents, who fail to treat your siblings with love and care, to the married person, to the parent who may blame themselves for their child's sin, who feels as though you fail all too often to love your spouse and your children like Christ, who struggle with intimacy with Christ as you balance marriage, work, and parenting, and who may feel lonely in all these things, to the single, unmarried person who feels unseen, who feels lonely, left out, who longs for deep intimacy with other people, yet still lies down in bed at night alone, who is trying to figure out friendships with others who have spouses and families and who may long for marriage, all ye sinners, weary and heavy laden, I bid you come and see Christ who loves you. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to John chapter 4. The text will be on the wall. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible translation. We'll be reading from John chapter 4, verses 7 through 26. This is the word of the Lord. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew... Ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, she asked him, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him, and he would give you living water. 
Sir, the woman said, you don't even have a bucket, and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said, Everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. Go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus told her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Let's pray. Father, you are God. You are holy. And you created us. We are made in your image. Yet we are in sin, we have sinned, we are sinful, and we are broken and in need. The effects of our sin reach to places we may not even realize in our own flesh, in our hearts, in our desires, in our actions. And yet you came to us in broken flesh as your own son to be with us, to be near us to save us. You crossed barriers unimaginable to come to us. You gave us Christ as yourself, Father, and I thank you so much for that. God, your word is holy, and I pray, Father, that your word would go out and not return to you void as you have declared it to be so. Your word would instruct us and rebuke us and correct us and train us in righteousness and that we would see that your word is alive and active and that we would see Christ this morning in your word. Father, I confess that I am unworthy in and of myself and my sin to come and preach these words, but it is Christ's righteousness that allows me to stand here and deliver your word to a body of Christ that has loved me and shown me the heart of Christ. We trust in Jesus, and it's in his name that I pray. Amen. Before we get to our first point, I'd like to ask you a question. Have you ever felt shame over something you've done, over something done to you, over something you've felt? over something you've thought or said. 
In my life, I have felt such depths of shame over the fact that for as long as I can remember, I've experienced same-sex attraction. This shame over time turned into self-contempt. My own guilt and shame ostracized me from feeling a sense of belonging and being lovable. But my shame was compounded by my own actions and sin. Praise be to God that in this place, in this body of Christ, I have been shown the heart of Christ and have experienced much freedom from the crippling shame and self-contempt I once felt. Let me clarify for a moment that guilt and shame are closely related but uniquely different. Guilt is a feeling that says, I have done something bad. But shame is more deep than guilt. Shame is more personal. Shame says to you, not only did you do something bad, you are bad. You are the sum total of the bad things you've done that you feel guilty about. Shame gets at your identity. Shame gets at who you are your sense of worth, your sense of being. Have you ever felt such great shame? Such shame that makes you feel ostracized, makes you feel like you don't belong, like you're unworthy of love? For a moment, I want you to consider how you have felt shame in your life. I'm going to be silent for a moment, and I want you to reflect on the shame you carry. What is that thing you've done or that's been done to you or that thing you've said or felt or thought, or the ways you feel like you lack or fail, that bring about the greatest sense of shame in your life. Take a moment and consider this. There may be some of you who feel like you do not experience any shame to you, I say this. It is probable that there is something somewhere in you that makes you feel shame, and it's possibly more likely that you're unaware of that shame, or worse, you've learned to coexist with it for so long. I bring these things up because I want us to be able to so viscerally relate to what we see in God's Word. As we look at God's word this morning, I want you to be able to see this passage through the lens of what your shame makes you feel. I want you to see Jesus and hear him and observe his interactions with this Samaritan woman. So Jesus had been in Judea, and he was going to Galilee. So just geographically for a minute, we're in Alabama, and if you want to get to Kentucky, you've got to go through Tennessee, or you could go all the way around the state and get to Kentucky. In the same way, Jesus was in Judea, and he was going to Galilee, and Samaria was right between the two regions. Jesus was a Jew. The Jews did not like Samaritans, and that's putting it extremely lightly. It's important to consider that historically, Jews would have avoided that region entirely and would have taken a different route. The reason why this is significant is because the Samaritans were a people who the Jews considered to be essentially a half-breed Jew, a half-blood Jew. There was such disdain among the Jews for these people. We also need to consider that the Samaritans practiced what the Jews considered to be an unclean, superstitious Judaism. There was great racial and religious tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. 
We also see here that it was about noon, and a Samaritan woman came to the well shortly after Jesus had sat down to rest. The customs of the Jews were that Jewish men were not to engage with another woman in almost any context. So not only are we seeing two people from opposing races, there is religious opposition here. They were opposite genders, and the customs of the time would have prevented them from even interacting at all. And she knew this. The fact that this scene is taking place around noon is perplexing. You see, this woman was an adulterous woman. She was known to be a sexually immoral woman. The women would have traditionally come together to draw water early in the morning. But here we have this woman who is by herself in the middle of the day. There's a few things I want to say about this woman and based on what we know about how shame affects the human. This Samaritan woman would have been carrying shame. I mean, imagine her situation. At this point in her life, she likely has core beliefs about her worth and identity. She likely saw her world around her through the lens of her own sense of self-worth. Consider then the audacity of Christ to enter this moment with her. For Jesus then, then to say, give me a drink, sort of blows all of the expectations out of the water. He just sort of blows up the barriers that are in place here. Why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? Why is Jesus interacting with this sexually immoral Samaritan woman? Why is he asking her for a drink? Why is he putting himself at risk of being made ceremonially unclean? John lets us know for certain that Jews and Samaritans just do not associate with one another. The impossibility of this interaction is astonishing. There just is no reason for this exchange to have ever taken place except for the fact that this is our Savior. This is Jesus Christ, who had gone through Samaria because there were people there who needed salvation, people there who needed to experience Christ, who needed Jesus himself. There are three things I want us to see in this passage. The person in need, the person of Christ, and the person transformed. So the person in need. This woman had not just been with two men. She had been with six men. This was highly inappropriate. The people knew. This woman had been rejected by her people. She had probably been ostracized from her community for many years. Perhaps others in her community, these other women were afraid they would become unclean by interacting with her because of her grotesque sin. So she went to go draw water by herself. Then this man, the Messiah, engages her. This woman needed life. She needed freedom. She needed transformation. She needed Christ. Yet there were insurmountable barriers up in this woman's life that should have prevented her from ever interacting with Jesus. We see here that when Jesus starts to engage this woman and starts to confront her about her reality, her sin, she starts deflecting to other topics, trying to avoid what's right in front of her or rather who's right in front of her. She goes on to say, I know that the Messiah is coming who's called the Christ. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. I want us to engage truly, personally, with what this woman could be feeling right now. 
for a moment, imagine, really imagine, close your eyes if you have to, imagine that this is you. Remember the, the question I asked of you earlier. What is that thing that brings you shame? What is that shame that you experience? What is that thing in your life that makes you feel ostracized and unlovable? What is that thing that makes you feel like you can never be truly accepted by Christ? And when you start to think about what it might take to truly experience Jesus, what barriers do you feel stand between you and Jesus because of this shame in your life? This woman did in some ways recognize Jesus to be a messianic figure, the one they have been hoping for, waiting for. She might even be a little bit close to understanding even at this moment that this man could be him. Jesus then tells her, I am that man. The literal text would say, I, the one speaking to you, I am. He professed to her using the same language she knows God to have used of himself. He makes a messianic declaration. He freely tells her who he is. There's no telling how long she had been ostracized for. There's no telling how long she had felt lonely and rejected. And she'd been waiting for this true Messiah, this man who not too long after this moment together will go to the cross to die for her sin and shame to offer a sacrifice for sins once and for all. For the longest time, maybe she's just been running back to her sinful ways, hoping to fix her shame. Even when Jesus made himself known to her, she still wanted to deflect and argue about what proper worship was. Can you relate to this in your shame? Do you go back to the thing that you already feel shame over to sort of quench the thirst a little bit? When you feel more shameful, do you feel more empty, more ostracized? She may have felt used and discarded to some degree, unseen and uncared for. How, how can you relate to this? What are the lies in you that prevent you from experiencing Christ when those lies are telling you who you are? When Jesus is making himself known to you, how does your shame prevent you from seeing him? In their conversation, Jesus was helping her understand that she thirsted for something greater than just water. She thirsted for life, for freedom, for Christ. Jesus was beginning to help her understand that she needed something more than water, something more than relationships after man, after man, after man. What I'm wanting us to see here is that we are in need that in this passage, we are the woman. We might want to first and only see ourselves as Jesus in this passage, but I think for us to gain the full gravity of this account of Christ is for us to see ourselves as this woman, that we have shame to deal with, and that Satan himself shames us. Satan uses our shame to tell us lies about why Jesus won't accept us, why others won't accept us, why we're unlovable, and Satan uses our shame to tell us lies about our worth and our identity. I ask you, are you in need? Are you needy for Christ? In your shame, do you miss Christ for who he truly is? Do you deflect? Do you keep running to other things to fill your emptiness, to cope with your shame? The second thing I want us to see is the person of Christ. 
We see Jesus' full humanity on display. Our God experiencing the weakness of human flesh. He was tired, he was thirsty, he was hungry, it was hot and dusty, and he sits down, not on a cushion and certainly not on a throne, but sits down in the dirt beside a well and proceeds to ask a sexually broken and ashamed sinful human woman for water when he could have commanded the stones to pour water out for him. We see that Christ quickly had a heart for this woman to know and experience eternal life. We see Christ deny his own immediate needs in order to minister to this woman. We see Christ declare himself to be the Messiah to her. We observe Christ's determination to love the lost in spite of religious customs, in spite of the risk of his reputation, in spite of any perceptions of who this woman was. He wasn't afraid to associate with her because he had compassion on those who were harassed and helpless. He had compassion on those who were weary, broken, and rejected. He had compassion on those who were ashamed and sinful. Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, fully God and fully human, our hope in life and death, broke through all conceivable barriers to enter this woman's life, to enter her shame, to enter her isolation, to know her and love her and show himself to her, to discuss her sin with her and to give her life. Jesus sat with her. He saw her for who she really was, not just her sinful ways. He validated her humanity when others didn't. And what what I mean by that is he saw her as a human that was in need of something eternal for life. I want to consider for a moment how he goes about bringing up her sin. He very plainly invites her to go get her husband and come back. Jesus was now confronting her sin. What she said was, I don't have a husband. And she was hoping to deflect again. And then what Jesus said to her was, you're right in saying you don't have a husband, for you've had five husbands, and the man you're now with is not your husband. What you have said is true. What we don't see Jesus do is anything of this sort. Oh, wow, I can't get too close to you. Or maybe I shouldn't interact with her just in case she thinks I'm affirming her lifestyle choices. Or maybe I should have told her right out of the gate, you know, like since it's obvious what's going on and who I am, that I think she's in sin and that she needs to change. Or I don't want to be too kind to her in case she thinks she's getting a pass on her sinful lifestyle. Jesus didn't say anything like that. He didn't say anything about her or her character, and he didn't make an opinion on her sin. He just sat with her, and he saw her. He met with her. He made himself known to her and spoke plainly about her life with her, and that is what had such an impact on her. Jesus didn't let any cultural norms stand between him and this woman. He didn't let political or religious or racial or gendered barriers stand between him and this woman. He stepped into her world, literally her world, her country, her domain. He went there and saw her and knew her and loved her there. Yes, he told her about her own sin, but he made himself available to her. 
He showed her the Christ, the Savior of the world, and her life was transformed. I wonder, how often do we act like a Jew of that time to the people in our own culture who are like this woman without recognizing that we are the woman too? We think we're being like Jesus when we engage with someone in our culture who might be like this woman, might be in the same sort of situation as this woman. We think in that moment that Jesus would want us to make sure we let them know, you know, that we don't affirm what they're doing. Where we might think or say, I just need to make sure you know that I'm a Christian and I don't agree with your choices but we very evidently don't see Jesus like that in this passage with this woman. How much do we sort of purport or play into the social, cultural barriers that keep sexually ashamed people from experiencing Christ because of what we believe or feel or think about people who are sexual outcasts, who are ashamed and ostracized? We may think that their sexual sin is just too much. Jesus didn't do that. We need to see ourselves as the woman. We need to understand and experience how Jesus has burst through the barriers between each of us and him and deeply know how he has transformed our lives. In order for us to be able to love other people well, to enter their story, enter their shame, enter their rejection with them, we need to see and experience for ourselves, how Christ sits with us in our own shame. And with this, we are better able to see the world around us through the same lens that Jesus saw the world. We have his word. We've been given a new heart. We have the Holy Spirit in us. And Christ looked at the world, especially the outcast, the ashamed, the rejected, as harassed and helpless sheep without a shepherd. He saw that they were in great need for a Savior and had unimaginable compassion for them. We need to see the culture around us, these people around us, the world around us through this biblical lens that no one is righteous, not one. Not one of us here in and of ourselves that we all, like sheep, have gone astray, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that we all were at one time harassed and helpless in our own sin and shame and still are helpless in and of ourselves. Though now we have a shepherd. Now we have been saved from our sins. We have the hope of the gospel that destroys our sin, reckons with the consequences of our sin, and destroys our shame, giving us a sense of belonging and worth by way of our adoption and Christ's righteousness applied to us. I love what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 3 through 9. It should be on the screen. We, too, all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ 
even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. Every one of us here who are in Christ were at one time living among the lost and dying world in our fleshly desires. The people in the world who are experiencing such great rejection and feeling as though they are outcast because of their own sexual sin, because of their own shame, we were among them also at one time. That was us. The gospel transforms. It bursts open our expectations of who would receive faith. The gospel disrupts our perceived status quo by, set by religious and cultural norms and expectations, Jesus did and still does save the worst of sinners. In your shame, in the ways in which you feel ostracized from Christ, in your sin, ostracized from other people, the heart of Jesus is to give you life. The heart of Christ is to transform your shame. The heart of Christ is to free you from that shame. The heart of Christ is to forgive you of your sin. The heart of Christ is to sit with you when you feel most rejected, most left out, most ostracized. The hope we have in Christ is that he is faithful to do this. He is faithful to burst through any barrier to come meet with us and to give us life and freedom. When we're confronted with an opportunity to engage with someone who may be experiencing sin and shame, and our thought is, I don't agree with their lifestyle. I don't agree with their ways. I don't agree with their choices or what they're doing. Then we've got it all wrong. We must remember that we are not special. We are no more special. There's nothing in you or in me that sets us above a social outcast like this woman. We should be humbled by recognizing that we at one time were in the same exact spot as this woman. That Christ entered your life and my life and offered us life and made us new and offered us freedom from our sin and shame. And for those of you here that are not in Christ, I invite you to see that Jesus Christ has this heart for you as well. His heart is to be near those who are needy. After bearing some kind of witness to this encounter of Jesus and this Samaritan woman, I'm hoping that God's word is meeting you where you are this morning. That it's coming to life in a way that you can viscerally relate to. The shame you feel may not be sexual shame, but that in whatever shame you carry, you're able to see that God humbles you, he makes you needy, 
He exalts and magnifies the work of Jesus to enter into your shame, to sit with you in your shame, to deliver you from sin, to validate your humanity when you feel rejected and ostracized, unworthy of any acceptance or love, and to transform your life. And now we come to our third point together, the person transformed. The woman's life is transformed in her meeting with Jesus at the well. She goes running into a crowd of people, people who just earlier that day she would have felt rejected by. And she shares with them what Christ did in her life. And they come to see and meet this man. They come and bear witness. The woman's life was now changed. This shameful, broken, weary, ostracized, sinful, lonely woman's life was now different because Jesus saw her need. He moved toward her. He validated her humanity and he loved her. He didn't just only love her where she was, though. He loved her unto a new life. We hear it all the time here at Redeemer. God loves broken and messed up people, but he loves us so much not to leave us in our brokenness and mess. Not only was her life transformed, many lives of those in Samaria were transformed. What about us? What about you? Are you transformed? If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Do you believe this is true of you? Or does your shame still prevent you from seeing and experiencing Christ's heart for you? If you have been transformed, how does that then impact the way you engage the world around you? Y'all, when you look at our world, there are millions, billions of people who are hurting, who are harassed, and helpless, and there are barriers that are up, barriers they don't see any way around, barriers to them finding true eternal hope and joy and healing and love. Consider for a moment the barriers that might be up in the lives of those you know, perhaps in the life of someone that lives in your neighborhood that might have a rainbow flag hanging outside this month. Let me encourage you to think for a moment about a community in our country that might experience such clear social and religious barriers to truly seeing and experiencing Christ's heart for those who are ashamed and needy. I have asked you many times to consider your own shame this morning so that you might better relate to other ashamed and hurting people. And thinking of a modern day parallel, I can't help but to think about the LGBTQIA plus community. If you're wondering how you can go show others the heart of Christ that you have experienced in your own shame, then let me offer this very brief application to consider. Christians who have experienced the heart of Christ in their own shame, get to exemplify Jesus and share the hope of the gospel to people in the world who are longing for it. But how often do we act like a traditional religious Jew 
towards sexually broken and outcast people in our culture. Sexual sinners are not exceptional sinners. Does God hate sexual immorality? Yes. Does God hate a lot of different things in our sin? Yes. I affirm, and this church affirms, that God's word is explicitly clear in saying that any and all sexual experience outside of biblically defined marriage is sin. But the folks in the LGBTQIA community are not exceptional sinners. They don't need any more of Jesus' death than we did. They don't need some exceptional amount of Christ's bloodshed to cover their sin and shame. As Christians, it would be abhorrent to hate someone because of their particular experience with sin and shame, especially after everything we've observed here together this morning. Are you hesitant to move towards someone from this community of people? Are you hesitant to move towards someone dealing with sin and shame that you might feel is too unclean to you? Do you ever think that there's no way Jesus would want to transform their life when he has so evidently, undeservingly transformed yours and mine? Oftentimes, those of us in the church think of the LGBTQIA community, the people in this community, in that way. That they and their sin are just so beyond me and there's no way for me to relate to them. I don't want to move toward them in case they think that I'm okay with what they're doing or who they are. Consider for a moment, what if Jesus had been hesitant to move towards you or me? What if Jesus sort of only just wanted to hand us a note from like a 16-foot pole and tell us that he's not okay with what we're doing, that he doesn't agree with our sin? As we have seen, that's not Christ. I'm afraid at times we as Christians think that's who Jesus is, and then we emulate that idea of who Jesus is to the lost world, to the harassed and helpless, hurting people in the world who carry such shame, who are ostracized and rejected in their own cultures and communities. Jesus sat with this woman at the well. He entered her reality. He saw her. He talked to her. He told her the truth. He engaged her as a human, a hurting human who needed eternal life. What I really want us to get out of this passage is being able to see who Jesus is for you, for me. That Jesus is the hope of the gospel in your life and to experience how that moves us to share the hope of the gospel with the world. We need to be able to talk about how we've experienced Jesus enter into our most shameful, sinful places and how Christ sees us and changes us forgives us and gives us life and joy and hope, how we've experienced transformation and repentance in the places where once we only experienced death and emptiness. We are a transformed people. The world can be transformed by the gospel. The Samaritans were transformed. This woman was transformed because of this encounter with Jesus. If you take 
nothing else away from our time together this morning. Take away this one simple truth. The heart of Christ, the heart of the gospel, is to meet with broken and hurting, needy people. The heart of Christ and the heart of the gospel is to burst through all perceived barriers and invade a person's space and reality to show us our sin, to show us who Christ is, the Savior of the world, to give us new life, to give us living water. Jesus wants to meet you in your most shameful places. Jesus wants to sit with you. He wants to transform you. If you are in Christ, will you go and meet with other ostracized, ashamed, rejected, hurting, and broken people? Will you show them the heart of Christ that you've experienced? If you are not in Christ, will you bring your shame to him and experience how Jesus breaks through the barriers in your life to transform you? Again, I shall say, all ye sinners who are weary and heavy laden, I bid you come and see Christ who loves you. Let's pray. Father God, you came. You burst through unimaginable, insurmountable, insurmountable barriers to get to us, to come and meet with us, and to accomplish everything that we could never accomplish in and of ourselves. Father, for those of us who are in Christ, who have received this gift of faith by your grace, God, I pray that you would enter into our shame, that you would give us assurance of who we are in Christ, that, that your word would declare truths over us far and above any word our shame or Satan would have to say about who we are. Father, I pray that we would cherish Christ more, that we would experience life with him, that we would come to you in our sin and shame, knowing that you do not tire from sitting with us in it because it's who you are. Father, I pray that you would allow us to see other people in this world with the same eyes that Christ saw them as harassed and helpless people who are in need of a Savior, that we would be sensitive to going and meeting them where they are and engaging them and showing them the heart of Jesus. I pray that as we bear witness to Christ and experience him, you would use us to continue transforming your world and bringing the lost to yourself. Jesus, thank you for all that you have done and for finishing the work and applying your righteousness to us. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Thank you.